1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it, uh, Lord, is a gift to us because, Lord, through it we understand your heart, your will, and what you desire for us. But, Lord, it also is a means of care and comfort for your children. And I ask today that as we open up this passage together that we would find ourselves um, sitting in this text, Lord, understanding that we are being spoken to, we are being uh, encouraged and strengthened and guided, Lord, by your word this morning. And Lord, take us wherever we may be, whether we're struggling with sin, whether we are burdened down with something that is a big obstacle before us, Lord, whatever it might be, uh, would you give us strength today to, to trust you, to listen to you, and to, to follow your will. And Lord, we need your grace, we need your strength, and Lord, we plead with you today that we would be benefited by it uh, as we study your word. I ask, Lord, as your messenger, Lord, simply to be a mouthpiece for your text, that you would speak through me, and Lord, that you would be heard, and you would be understood, and that you would be glorified. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I think you agree with me that we live in a pretty fast-paced uh, society. Um, we have drive-through restaurants. Um, many places have drive-through banks. Here in California, that's kind of a thing of the past. Um, used to be a pretty popular thing. Um, there are even drive-through convenience stores. Um, we have carpool lanes on the freeway. Um, at Disneyland, you have fast pass privileges so you can get to the front of the line. Um, we have Amazon Prime, right? And everyone's favorite um, might want to say FedEx so you can get your documents where you want to get them the very next day. We want things done quickly. Quick food, taxes done quickly, eye exams done quickly, doctor visits, laundry, and we want quick solutions to our problems. This week I was trying to add my wife to a credit card and it shouldn't have taken long. In fact, I should have been able to do it online, but it ended up being this huge, huge hassle and I found myself getting upset because I just wanted it done quickly. Should be able to do that, right, in this day and age. We want things done quickly and friends, that 
that fast-paced quickness moves into our Christian thinking and our approach to how we are to grow in Christ. And oftentimes, we are seeking quick solutions to our problems. Now, we may admit our sin, we may repent of our sin, we may be thankful for the immediate forgiveness that we receive, but we have a hard time dealing with the damage that our sin has left and the time that it takes to right it or make the necessary restitution. We're thankful for the forgiveness that we receive, the immediate forgiveness that we receive, but we're discouraged by the lasting effect of our sin. And in this book, um, in this particular uh, book of Haggai, we have this message to God's people at a certain particular context in time. This is right after the exile because of Cyrus. The people go back to, um, uh, to Jerusalem after being in exile in Babylon. They're given the, the freedom and the privilege and the resources to rebuild the temple. And they get back there. It's a wonderful celebration. They're sent off by the people that are still living in Babylon. And they send them with, you know, with gold and, and, and resources and help. And they take offerings. And it's just a wonderful time. And they finally get to Jerusalem. They get started on the temple. And two years into it, there's opposition. And so they stop the rebuilding process. And so what happens after 16 years of, of waiting for the people to actually continue the work, God jumps in and speaks. But he has been doing things over the course of those 16 years to get their attention. But he comes and he says, consider your ways. And that simply is a way of saying, I want you to do some honest self-evaluation. I want you to look hard at where you've been and where you're going and where you are right now and what got you here. And what they found was that they had been making excuses for doing what God had called them to. They had said, well, not yet. And they convinced themselves that what they're thinking was actually right and honored God, but it didn't. And God had to expose that thinking. And they also had taken the resources for the temple and began to put them into their own homes. And, and rather than focusing on what God had called them to, they started to focus on what they thought they needed to do. And they, they, they put... These, these resources into their homes, and they were comfortable in their homes, and they had stopped ultimately building the temple. But remarkably, after God comes to them with this, this message, the people listen, and they listen to what God has to say, and, and over the course of time, they ponder it, and together, as a unit, as a, as a corporate body, they come, and they repent of their sin. And they say, you're right, we have done this. And we want to get back to the work. We want to be restored to you. And so there's this wonderful resolve in the people when they listened and repented and, re and sought to, to get back to this work. Now we pick up in verse 1, the second message one month later, one month after that time of repentance. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So this second message, friends, is not a message of confrontation. This is now a message that has as its core a desire to encourage the people because they are discouraged. And they're discouraged, you might want to say, because of some, some very simple, practical reasons. And, 
And uh, the first one is simply this, the extent of the cleanup. Now, now, they repented. They were restored to God. Their sins were forgiven. They wanted to get back to the work. But there was before them this rubble and the foundation that had been sitting for 16 years unattended. Imagine abandoning your home for 16 years. What would it be like? Well, your grass would probably be gone, or it would just be weeds. You probably would have gutters that are falling apart. You may not be caring about the leaks or the holes that are in the walls, and so there's damage that's taking place. Who knows what kind of critters have actually gotten into the house and have torn it up. Over the course of 16 years, that's a lot of time for things to happen. And so what they have before them today in this particular passage is the foundation, but the mess that was left just unattended for 16 years. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that the implications of of neglect stared them in the face and demanded their attention before they could even consider getting back to the building of this temple. Now, I'm a little unusual. Um, When I uh, do dishes at my house, um, I kind of have a routine. It's kind of weird. I think my family kind of maybe sits back and snickers at it, but I I tend to do like a pre-organization before I actually do the dishes. It's not just like, oh, what's next, and wash it and do it. I kind of want to rinse off the plates and stack them here and put the cups here and get it all organized because I'm not just washing, but I'm also placing, and I I'm, I'm have a system to it. And so there's a sense in which there has to be some preparation here before they can build. It's not just, okay, let's go build. Oh, I'm going to start hammering away. No, there has to be some thinking, right? There has to be some organization, and there has to be some assessment of the situation. And friends, that takes time. So that's the first practical reason why um, they may be discouraged. The second one, though, is the extent of the celebrations. This was something that was not part of their control at all. Now, I want to summarize it a little bit here. You have there in your handout just a a picture of these these celebration feasts and, and days that are part of the calendar. And these are days when you could not be doing work. And these are all taking place within, might want to say, a, a 30-day period. So for 14 days, the people had to pause and to stop and celebrate. Like in today's context, it would be like, guess what? Not only are we going to have Sunday services, but we're going to have like services throughout the week. And, you know, everyone's coming to the services and they're thinking, you know, I've got to go out and take care of, you know, you know, the farm that I'm supposed to have and the fruit I have on the trees, but I can't get to that. Why? Because I'm seeking to honor God by being faithful to celebrate the fast or the feast that he's established. So for 14 days, they couldn't work. So out of 30 days, only 15 or 16 days, could they do anything? (laughs) I mean, this is just part of God's providence. And sometimes just the responsibilities of life that lay before us can be discouragements when we know that God has called us to do a specific thing. We can't get to it. And so these are some practical things that are there. So uh, the bottom line is this. They were right with God, but now living with the consequences of their sin. And progress seemed to be moving slowly. And so 
It's tempting during that time when, when movement is slow to get discouraged, to actually wrestle with whether or not you're really forgiven, to wonder whether or not um, what God is doing and what God has done is right and begin to kind of start these battles in your head. Now I want you to think about a few of these scenarios. I want to paint a picture here. And I'm not thinking about anyone in particular, but just kind of use these to help kind of connect the dots to the kind of things that we experience in life. A teen cheats on a test and therefore receives a zero. And this results in ineligibility, disqualification maybe from a special program, and quite possibly failing the class or even the grade. They have sought forgiveness from God, They have been restored in fellowship to him, but they still have to live with the consequences of their actions. It's a hard reality, but it is going to take some time for them to restore their status. You kind of get the tension that's here. They're forgiven. They're restored. But the reality of the consequences of their sin is staring them in the face. There's work to do now. A young adult gives into the pressure of the the glitter of the world, allowing themselves to become involved in the the popular young adult culture, drugs, alcohol, um, promiscuity, and now they're living with the, the consequence and the reality of a newborn baby and the constant fear of HIV or AIDS. They're forgiven. They realize their sinfulness. They came before God and they repented of their sin But after they have been restored, they open their eyes, and before them still is this little baby. And still are all the rigmaroles of what it means to be a mother. Or if it's a a guy, it's a a child that, that you have to now care for. These are all natural consequences for someone who is now right with God but has to face because of the sin that they have committed. An older couple see their grand their their grown children living for self rather than with regard for the Lord. And so now they recognize as they reflect how they have been responsible for much of the way that they have uh, directed their children. And they're gutted and they go to God, they seek forgiveness, they talk to their children, they seek forgiveness, but there's still the natural behavior that's there. The point here is this, that when we sin, We go to God, we restore our relationship with Him through forgiveness. We are restored completely, totally, immediately. And there is hope, but we still face the reality of our sinfulness. And friends, that's what's going on here, isn't it? But not only with these people where they face in their own reality, but there's also the shadow of the reality of their forefathers who allowed through their disobedience the temple to be destroyed. And now they're having to rebuild it, but they're looking at it and they're saying, this is, how in the world is this going to happen? How can, I, how can I actually accomplish something that of significance here? And friends, that's part of the tension. That's part of the, the struggle. That's part of the discouragement that they're experiencing. And so it's at times like this when we know that we're fully forgiven that so often we're faced with the rubble of the sinful consequences and the daily responsibilities of living life for God's glory. And they battle because you want to move ahead, but God's called you to other things too. And so you're challenged, and you're like, God, I need help. And this is where people, the people of Judah find themselves, and God comes to them with a message of great encouragement to show them that he understands their discouragement. 
to show them or to encourage them that they can press on and do what he has called them to do. To show them that their faithfulness is totally worth it. Now friends, it's so easy to want to throw in the towel and say, this is too hard, I give up. And God is coming to them saying, listen, I know it looks bleak, but I want you to keep on going, and you can do this. And this is not like a a rah, 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 you can, you can, you can kind of a passage, but this is substance that allows God's people to say, I can get up and I can press on to do what he's called me to do. And not only that, it is worth it. It It is worth me plugging away and being faithful to him. We might even say it this way. Every Christian can learn to overcome their discouragement. How? By by noticing how God deals with the people of God in this passage. And so we can say this. How does God help us overcome our discouragement? Well, we're going to discover that as we go through this passage. Now, friends, this is such a helpful resource for us. Anyone here never get discouraged? If you raise your hand, we're all going to be discouraged. Okay? Okay. We all experience discouragement, right? This morning, God had to teach me once again discouragement. My front yard has been drying up. My kids play basketball out there. When people come over, they play basketball, and there's a few patches of of bare grass where they've stood and they've shot. It's just a perfect spot right there on the grass for them to shoot. And I'm like, okay, I want to restore this. And we did some restoration on the house, and there were some patches that were there. And so I'm watering it and caring for it. And it started, to, the green started to come back. And I'm like, this is great. I wake up this morning, and everything's dug up. There's been like a skunk in my yard. And it's just like, it's no longer like this grass. It's like, I mean, it's like torn and dug. And I'm like, what is going on here? And it's discouraging. And life can be like that, Right? You press on and suddenly, whop, you're discouraged. And friends, God is still at work even in those times of discouragement. So let's think through this passage together. Let's let's see how God brings this encouragement. So notice next the reason for their discouragement. And it comes in the form of three questions. This is what he says to them. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So there's three questions we need to look at here to understand what God is getting at as he comes to these people to seek to encourage them. The first question, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Because of all the festivals that were going on, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem at this point in time. And they were, I'm sure, looking at the temple and reflecting, or at least what was the beginnings of a temple, and reflecting on what the temple used to be like. Now, it was maybe just a little over 66 years before this that Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple. So it's very possible that some of the people that were still living in Judah or that had come back from exile in Babylon were alive when that temple was still built. And they were able to compare, and they were able to think about what they're looking at as it compared to Solomon's temple. So the question is, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Anyone out there remember exactly what it looked like? And surely there were some. Maybe even Haggai was one of those people. We don't know. 
but certainly there were some. Now, turn your Bibles to 1 uh, Kings. And 1 Kings chapter 5 through 7 lays out in kind of detailed description the temple. But we're going to focus in on chapter 6. And I just want to, I want to show you um, from chapter 6 just two dynamics here about the temple that, just sh- that demonstrate to us how, how majestic, how incredible this temple was. And in particular to a, a, a Jew at that point in time. Look at chapter 6, verse 15 through 18. You'll catch the things that are repeated here. Talking about the temple here, he lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar. From the floor to the walls, he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place, the house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. I just imagine the, the, the beauty of this place and the wonderful smell. I mean, just a, a majestic interior lined with this beautiful material. Then notice chapter, chapter 6 and verse 20. We'll read through verse 22. Notice the thing that's repeated there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold, and he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was furnished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Gold, 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 and more gold. I mean, this was absolutely incredible, majestic, and just amazingly beautiful. So the next question is this. How do you see it now? (laughs) You who walked into that place that was full of this incredible carving wood all over the place and gold, laid all around the temple. What does it look like to you now? Rubble, weeds, dirty and dusty, lots of cleanup, a far cry from what it once was. Maybe if someone was visiting Jerusalem at that point in time and they were visiting with with you because maybe you were part of the responsibility of of the, the actual practical side of rebuilding the temple and you took them on a tour and they might say, well, It it has an altar, and that's a good thing, because the altar was already built. Uh, It's it's not that big, but I guess that means that the priests have shorter distance to walk, and that's good. Um, I like the particle board you have put up on the walls and the ceiling. That's a nice touch. Um, Oh, and the the deep yellow paint that that gives that kind of gold overlaid look um, is really also a nice touch to, to this particular temple. The reality was there may have been some kind of enthusiastic visioneering about the building of the second temple, but really as it compared to Solomon's temple, it was pretty pathetic. Not pretty pathetic, it was pretty sad. That's how we would say it today. Solomon's temple was magnificent, 
built with the cedars of Lebanon, and they didn't have those. It was built on the taxes of the people, which they didn't have. It was built by slave labor, which they didn't have. Not only that, but the empire that was Solomon's empire was absolutely incredible, but it was swallowed up then by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and now the Persians ruled, and they were ruled by Darius, who had this huge empire and included West India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, and the Sudan. And Judah was about 25 square miles. Now, the significance that we need to see, the, the way that we need to see the beauty of God's plan of redemption and the hopelessness of his people is that in that context, the people around, like Judah, where's Judah? Who's Judah? Aren't, weren't they destroyed years ago? What's up with that? They're nothing. The remnant of Judah were like a parched desert, a body barely alive, hardly breathing, hardly twitching. You know, just kind of ready to pass any moment. A forgotten place with forgotten people that the world around considered insignificant. And here's this temple. We're trying to, we're trying to build this temple. And it's nothing in comparison. Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Yeah, this temple was inferior, totally pathetic in comparison to Solomon's temple. Now friends, here is the, the rub of what's going on. This is a struggle with comparing that, that often leads us to discouragement. Comparing with our present circumstances with what they once were. Comparing what could have been if I had done X, Y, and Z, comparing with those around us. Just think, those people there in Jerusalem might have thought to themselves, you know, if our ancestors had just listened to Isaiah. If they had just paid attention and said, you know what, we are going to confess our sins, just like we did. This temple would still be built today. But look what we have now. And friends, regret can bring a lot of discouragement, can it? And I'm sure that's the kind of stuff that was going on here. The fruit of, of comparison is a perilous discouragement that restrains us from pressing on with following God's will and being faithful to the things he has called us to. So let's just think about the danger of comparing. In our context, we're going to think corporately, we're going to think individually here. Here are some ways that we compare that, that are unhealthy. We compare with how the church was in the past, in history. You know, the early church, thousands saved under Peter and the spreading of the gospel in Acts. Now, isn't there some pressure? It's like, well, if you just followed what they did in Acts, you know, chapter 2 and 3, God should be multiplying your church. And we're like, I'm comparing. It's like, no, it hasn't happened. And have we had like, you know, thousands and multiple of thousands join our church? No. We're comparing with the early church, comparing with the Reformation church. Aha, well, you know, the Reformation, they were able to fight, and they really did a lot of great things. The power of God breaking through the strongholds of godlessness with a pure gospel that quickly changed hearts. Is that what's going on? The Great Awakening, the great missionary movement. You can go back and compare 
our church, with some churches in the past and friends, when we do that, we're going to be discouraged. And the point is, it's unhealthy to do that. Because God hasn't called us to have a church in the past. He's called us to a particular place now. So not only a church in history, but also a church, a previous church that maybe you attended. Oh, you know, at such and such church. You know, we had such and such. And I remember the choirs at such and such. And I remember the building at such and such. And the ministry we had here at such and such. And all sorts of this and that and the other. And it's like, I'm glad for all those experiences. But we've got to be careful to compare what was in that place that you used to go to with where you are now. And if we do that, it's easy to get discouraged. God has called us here. He's called Gateway to be Gateway. Now, here. And to do it the way God has called us to do it. To compare ourselves then with another church across town. Maybe the church is a little off beam in some practices or some theology, but they're large and people are flocking there and it seems like they're impacting the community. And you, you start thinking that way, you can just, you can really be discouraged and actually stop doing what God has called you to do. It's very easy to be there. When we compare ourselves then with other believers, it can produce in us a discouragement. We convince ourselves we can never be like them. We can never be used like they're being used. My, our, our gifts, we might think, are limited and, you know, compared to that particular super-Christian over there, at least in your mind, right? And sometimes this is fleshed out during times of testimony and praise for how God has worked in their lives. And you hear the testimony, you know, we were... We were behind in our bills, like, you know, $10,000, and we didn't know what we were going to do, and so we prayed, and, you know, something happened, and I went to the mailbox, and there was a check for 5000 and then the next day, you know, something else happened, and someone wanted to buy my decrepit car, and they wanted to pay $2,500, and they're coming up with all these stories, and like, oh, isn't this great? God is praising. You're thinking, yeah, I've been in my mailbox many times, and ain't no check there. <laughs> and so you start comparing yourself. And you say, maybe I'm doing something wrong. What's wrong with me? You see how that, that, that creeps in? We compare ourselves then also with the ungodly. There's the appearance of success and health and wealth, and they're going on this trip, and they're going on that trip, and they're doing this, and they got their golf clubs, and they're doing whatever it is. You know, we, we have this kind of jaded view sometimes. We compare ourselves with the ungodly, they seem to prosper. They get away with their wickedness. They seem to experience pleasure. And friends, that can be discouraging. Why is that happening? And we can compare ourselves with our own paths. Time maybe when we're walking with the Lord where it seemed that things were clicking and, and we were experiencing joy and we were being used by God, and now it just seems stale, and it seems like a struggle, and there's always more obstacle after more obstacle, and as soon as you get over one obstacle, there's another one facing you. And, and we just think to ourselves, God, this is too hard. There's something wrong. I'm doing something wrong here. And certainly in the grand scheme of things, we, we continue to sin, right? But the, the point is we, we get discouraged because we're looking at our circumstances, and we are comparing what we're going through with other people. And friends, that brings great 
discouragement. We must stop living in the past. We must stop comparing ourselves to others and recognize that God has called us to a particular church, so pour ourselves into the church family that he's placed us, and he's called us to a particular life, a particular marriage, a particular family, and whatever God chooses to bring, he's going to give us the wisdom and the strength for what is before us. That's our responsibility. When we start looking at everyone else, we can get discouraged quite easily. You know, the reality is we, we always have a jaded view. It's not a complete view, right? You know, oh, how prosperous those neighbors are that have all this stuff. Yeah, have you looked at their checkbook? Have you looked at their debt? Have you, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't always know what's real, but you believe what you see. Now, that's the, the reason for their discouragement was this, this comparison, this pondering of, Solomon's temple compared to their temple and how daunting and how just pathetic their circumstances were. Now, I want to say something here about the timing of their discouragement. And I think this is really important. We jump back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We don't have to read that, but we know in that passage, this is where the people of God came before God and they repented of their sin. And isn't it interesting that when God's people come before him and they say, you are right, I was wrong, please forgive me, I want to do now what you've called me to do, someone sticks his head up and says, I'm going to get in your way. That person's name is Satan. He's always trying to trip us up. Is he not? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this passage. Satan is always doing his utmost to stay the work of God. He hindered those Jews from building the temple, and today he endeavors to hinder the people of God from spreading the gospel. A spiritual temple is to be builded for the Most High, and if by any means the evil one can delay its uprising, he will stick at nothing. If he can take us off from working with faith and courage for the glory of God, he will be sure to do it. He is very cunning and knows how to change his argument and yet keep his design. Little cares he how he works so long as he can hurt the cause of God. So friends, the, the, the timing here of their discouragement is something important for us to note. You know, when you've spent a time with God in personal devotion and you're just like, oh God, thank you, I feel, I feel refreshed, I feel restored, I feel like I'm ready to serve you, look out. Okay? There's a timing because he, he doesn't like that at all. And certainly here there was this there was this. This perfect timing, you might want to say, on his part to get in and to, to bring this discouragement. Now, he comes to us with thoughts that question, question the reality of our commitment, the reality of our ability to actually do what God has called us to do. He, he comes and puts thoughts in our heads that we're not worthy or we're not skilled or we're not able or we're not gifted, we're not mature enough to actually take on this responsibility. Maybe you've taken time to consider your ways. You've repented of your sin. You've determined that God must be central in every area of your life. So now you're renewed in your commitment. You're, you're desiring to live for God as you've never done before. You place yourself in, in his word daily, regularly, and you long for the preaching of God's, of God's truth. You see your marriage, your parenting, your job, and just your, your life afresh from God's perspective when that is true, 
of one of God's children, you can be sure that he will poke his ugly head into your life in some way, shape, or form. I'm just throwing out a caution. He loves to do that. And he is throwing himself in the midst of what is going on here by bringing discouragement to the people. So now, having looked at the reasons and the timing, we also now want to transition by looking into the proper solution to their discouragement. How can I get up and back to the job that God has called me to? How can, I, how can God still use me when I've, when I've given in and I'm so discouraged? I mean, that's kind of like the, the cyclical spiral, isn't it? That I sinned, I was forgiven, I now stop because I'm discouraged, and how could God want to even forgive again a person who's stopped again because they're discouraged? And You kind of spiral down. How can I overcome my discouragement and continue to grow in Christ? And so we now move into the section here beginning at verses 4. And really there are going to be two things that the people of Judah need from God. I've actually already mentioned them at the beginning. But they need assurance that the task before them is a doable task with God's help. And they also need to know that it's a worthwhile task. That it's worth doing it. It's worth the hard work that he has called us to, to do it. And friends, when we are discouraged, that is what we need. We need to know that what we can do, or that we can do what God has called us to do, that we can do it. We also need to know that being faithful to the responsibilities that God has placed on our shoulders is worth it. It is significant to him. Now the reality is, the world around us doesn't care. You might say, you know, I've read my Bible five times in the last two years. Now, we in here say, you know, that's really good. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. That probably was really rich. Let's talk about, you know, what sections of the Bible really impacted you there. We appreciate that. The world outside does not care. They are not impressed. And the pursuit of Christ-likeness among the body of Christ is not something that impresses the world. It actually is considered to be nothing. It's empty. It's a waste of time. Oh, it's your religious pursuit thing. That's fine. If you want to do that, it's fine. It's not the same thing as what we desire from. We want to grow in Christ. And so God gives us two treasures here that will help us as we pursue our growth in him. And the first one is his commandments. The second one is his sovereignty. So letter A here, obedience to the commands of God. Now I know sometimes you use the word commands of God. It has this kind of harsh overtone. And the point here is this, that God speaks, and he speaks to us by saying, do this, do this. These are instructions. And he's giving us counsel. He's giving us guidance. And he he knows what's best. And so he says, this is what I want you to do. Well, notice what it says now in verses 4 and following. Yet now, what? Be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you. Fear not. He's saying, you can do what I have called you to do. First of all, be strong. Literally, take courage. Literally, be encouraged. Be physically and spiritually strengthened. How does God enable us to be strong? How does he strengthen us? You go back to chapter 1, verse 14. It tells us there that he stirred up the spirit of the people. He stirs up the inner man. He stirs up 
the Spirit of God working in the heart of the believer to do what he has called that particular person to do. Where do we get our strength? Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. A mighty fortress is our God. We sang about that this morning. Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, friends, strength is what comes from the Lord. He strengthens us through His Word, through pondering on who He is and what He has done, the kind of God that He is. We are strengthened, and He has also a work in our heart where He is at work doing what He needs to do to empower us. Then it talks about not only be strong, but it also work. And this is, this is, the, this is an active word. This, this means that, that you're actually doing something. This is not passive. I'm thinking about working. This is actually working. All right, now, I, I understand this. In fact, my, my family's going to laugh at this, but, you know, what's the best way for me to actually exercise? It's not to think about exercising, right? It's actually to exercise. And sometimes you don't feel like it, right? And you guys can be quiet when we get home, okay? Sometimes you don't feel like it. But sometimes you just need to get up and you need to take that walk. And when you've taken that walk, you actually feel better. And so there's a sense in which this is not passive. This isn't just going to happen. You've got to get up and determine that you're going to do it. That's the idea of what's going on, on here. Don't stray from it. Living now, working for God's glory, means that we are not living by our feelings. We're living by God's truth. God's truth is directing what we do, not how we feel at that particular moment. I mean, be honest, how many of you this morning woke up and said, oh, I just, I'm feeling like I need to get up right now? No, the alarm went off, and you're like, ugh. Why, do, why does church have to start so early at 10 o'clock, right? <laughs> but that's, so, no, but we conquer that by saying, you know, my feelings aren't going to rule what I'm doing today. I'm getting up, I'm doing what I need to do, because this is what, I need to do to honor and glorify God, to be a part of his family as they gather together. And we can say that about work. We can say that about all sorts of things. We overcome our feelings. And why is it then in the spiritual realm that we think, oh, my feelings need to rule what I do? Well, in the train of life, it's what you think first about God's word that produces in you the feelings that you have. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Right? You're saying, I want truth. I want Lord. I want an awareness of who he is and what he's done. I want that applied to my life. And as I experience that, I have joy. I have happiness. I have, you know, accomplishment. All these feelings are produced. Okay? Then it says, don't fear. Don't fear. No. Nehemiah is another example a little bit later, who had, again, opposition. And he told the people, listen, you work, but you work with one hand with a spear and one hand with a trowel, right? You're laying bricks with one hand, the other hand you have a weapon. Don't fear those who are there to try and stop you from doing what you need to do. And friends, we must plug away, recognizing that God is at work strengthening us through his word, 
that he desires for us not to be passive, but to be active and to actually begin the work, take on the responsibility, and not to fear. Now, I want you to notice that, that all of these commandments, all of these instructions to be strong, to work, and to not fear are given, um, or all given in the context of God's sovereignty, God's sovereign purposes here. So that means that I must receive those instructions with confidence in God resting in the many uh, facets of his sovereign care. Now, we'll, we'll, that fleshes out now with what we're going to talk about next. Letter A, then, obedience in the commandments of God. Secondly, confidence in the sovereignty of God. Because he's not asking us to do those things in a vacuum. He's actually backing those things up with himself. Okay? That's what I mean by his sovereignty. Now, I want you to notice here, as we press on in this passage, go back again to verse 4. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for, purpose statement, right? I am with you, declares the Lord. Remember last week we talked about what that word I am with you means? It's not talking about his omnipresence. It's talking about this covenant relationship. I am still your God. I'm standing here with you. I'm standing behind you. My presence is a real presence. And what's interesting in this passage is God is saying this. My presence among you will enable you to build my presence among you. Why? Because the temple of God was the visible, physical presence of God among his people. So his presence, his commitment to his people, was the very vehicle through which they were able to build his presence among them. And what's interesting as we flash forward to the New Testament, this is what we find that Jesus is also doing. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Jesus now speaking says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And who's he talking about? Himself. There's something greater now that we have because God has come in the flesh. And he had departed, he's now ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, but this relationship now that we have with God is no longer confined to this temple. In fact, this relationship that we have resides in the temple of our hearts. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't have to go through a mediator. We don't have to go through a priest. Because Jesus now is our high priest, and by virtue of what he has done, he has mediated for us, so now we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And that's why Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 5, Chapter 2, sorry, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Hmm, interesting image. A temple. To be a holy priesthood. What took place in the temple? The priests performed their duty. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Where did that take place? In the temple. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what was he talking about there? He was talking about the church. We, as little temples, come together. We make the spiritual house. The Holy Spirit resides in us. We worship God from our heart. This is how we commune with Him. So we notice then His presence. And we have this wonderful reality of the presence of God by virtue of the Holy Spirit living in us. Secondly, notice His promises. His promises. He covenants with them, verse 5, according, He says, to the covenant 
that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, is this, again, this is a flashback to the time of, uh, of uh, Exodus, number 6, actually, verses 24 through 26 in, in particular, where God gives this wonderful promise of his presence, of his protection, and of his blessing. But the, the point here is this. He's referring back to it, and he says, according to the covenant that I made. You might even want to say that I cut, because the promise, the covenant, was a cutting promise. Let me explain what that is. When the promise was made, there is a cutting of an animal that is done to bind that promise, to seal that covenant together. And what that cutting basically is saying is this. If I break my promise to you, may you do to me what I have done to this animal. It's one of the greatest ways you can bind a promise. Why? Because you're binding it with your own death. Okay? And God is saying here, according to the covenant that I cut with you when you came out of Egypt. Now, friends, that is a promise. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to this rabble group, this remnant, who are working on this pathetic temple. And he's saying this, I am just as committed to my promise to you as I was to your forefathers. Now, discouraged people who look at their scenario, who look at their situation, who look at their circumstances, who look at what God has called them to do, and it seems like nothing compared to other times in history or other circumstances need encouragement that God's promise is still just as true to you as it was in those glory days. Now, our problem is that when we look at the consequences of sin we often question the reality of his forgiveness. And Satan puts doubts in our thoughts, and we begin to believe those doubts, and as a result, we begin to diminish our grip on the sovereignty of God's promises in our lives. But we can be sure that God's covenant and his spirit remains. He's promised that to be true. So friends, when we talk about the promises of God, it's not just kind of like this happy-go-lucky, oh, this promise is floating, oh, that's a nice one up there. No, this is stuff that is serious to God. When he says, I will do, he says, I will do. That is true for all of us. Not only his promises, but we are encouraged by his purpose. His purpose. Look at verse 6, and we're going to actually read verses 6 through 9. We'll eventually get there, but verse 6 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, which tells you something already happened, right? Once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. You read through this passage, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. But this is divine shaking. And this is the kind of shaking that people are going to be affected by. This is a shake-up par excellence. And at present, things look bleak, they look pathetic, but with God's People stuck at the bottom of the pile. They were just nothing in comparison to the rest of the world. But there will be, he says, a sovereign shakeup. Now just, just think about them, how minuscule the people of God were at that point in time in their situation. And yet God promises, in my purposes, there is going to be a shakeup. And friends, 
it is, it is here that the New Testament reaches back into Haggai. And we find the New Testament connection to Haggai in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is toward the, toward the, the might want to say the latter parts of the New Testament. But Hebrews chapter 12, and in particular verse 26 and following. And we'll kind of work our way through this. We'll read a little bit, I'll explain a little bit, but just kind of get what's being said here. At that time, the writer of Hebrews says, his voice, talking here about when God gave his commandments on Mount Sinai, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, that's a quote. It's a quote from Haggai. The first shaking took, that, took place then at Mount Sinai. But now, verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, so they're tangible things, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So God is going to say, listen, I'm going to remove the tangible things, the things that you think are important, and I'm going to replace them with things that are not tangible, that cannot be shaken. And he explains it a little bit further, verse 20, 28 here, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Where is the kingdom today? Can I go touch a temple? No, the kingdom of God is a, a reality in the hearts of the believers. You can't tangibly touch it. You can't shake it and gold and silver and cedar fall out. So therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire because he will shake the heavens and the earth, and he will bring judgment on the heaven and the earth because it's what cannot be shaken that is the priority here, his kingdom. Now we go back to Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7, and we keep reading about God's purpose now. Verse 7, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Little side note here, you may have a different translation that says the desire of all nations, some Take that interpretation to refer to Christ. That's not a, an accurate translation. You have to trust me here. It's a translation from the Latin and as opposed to from the Hebrew, and so it loses some of the context here. The idea here is the treasures of all the nations. What, are the, what have the nations done? They've come, and they've taken all the stuff out of the temple, and they've taken it to their place. They've distributed it. They've melted it down. They've done stuff with it, right? And the nations around celebrate their power and their strength by what? By their gold and their treasures and all that kind of stuff. But notice what happens here. Notice what the Lord says. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is what? Mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So get the picture here. The nations that have come in and looted the temple, the nations that brag about their abundance, they are simply enjoying God's treasure for a season. 
God says, it is mine. The gold, the silver, all of it is mine. And he points forward to a day when the temple will be greater than even Solomon's temple. This is a pointing forward to a millennial temple. As magnificent and as amazing as Solomon's temple was, it does not compare to the glory that will be in that latter temple. And you say, what is, what is all this about? Why is he saying all this? Because he wants to encourage these, these followers here, these people, this remnant, to look at their situation and to see their situation in a greater context. You're comparing your temple that is just a foundation that is weeds with Solomon's temple. But let me tell you something. There is something far greater that this temple will once be. So begin to build. Begin the work. As hard as it, as it is for any of us to live with the consequences of our sin, as difficult as it is to pursue Christ with, a, with repeated failures and struggles and, and towel throwing, we have something glorious to look forward to, and that is God preparing us for eternity with him. Now, friends, you and I in this world will always have tribulation. Some of it because we're persecuted. Some of it's going to be because of our sin. And some of it's just because life is that way. But we all have the wonderful reality, the wonderful certainty that one day we will be in the presence of God in heaven, celebrating and worshiping him in this new temple. The presence of God will be fully realized and his glory will be fully on display in that place. And we have to look forward to that, but we also have to look forward to who we will be at that point in time. Who we are now compared to what we shall be does not compare. So plugging away and trusting God's purposes, even in the difficulty of your new circumstances, is really important. You've heard the story about Christopher Wren building a cathedral and reporter comes by and asks a worker, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm cutting stone for 10 shillings a day. So the interviewer goes to another person and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm simply putting in 10 hours a day. And he goes to another one. He says, well, what are you doing? And he steps back and all proud and he says, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build a cathedral. And the reality is, friends, you are part of God's tools to bring about the building of his kingdom. He is working his will through you. It might seem like nothing compared to something else you perceive or to some heroes you have in the past, but it is God's plan for you. And rebuilding this temple for those remnant people was God's plan for them. Sometimes it helps to have God's perspective to encourage us in how we view our circumstances. Now, I also want you to notice his peace. Look at verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. What's that all about? Well, the United Nations might get together and might bring some resolution and might want to declare there's peace in a particular area or there's going to be peace in a particular 
uh, location, but that is not the kind of peace that's being talked about here. This is a peace that comes after God shakes the nations in judgment. This is a peace that comes after God puts things right and justice is restored. But this peace is available for us today through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ came preaching the gospel of what? Of peace. Because when we come to God through Jesus Christ, confessing our sin, repenting, and embracing the forgiveness that we have in Him, we are declared righteous. That is something that happens once, and that status never changes. And because that is true, that means we are forever now at peace with God. We have been reconciled to Him. And so we, as God's children, as the as the followers of Christ, have at, uh, at our core this, this promise, this truth, this certainty that even though I sin, even though I fall into the ditch, even though I, I struggle in many different ways, at the core, I am right with God. He looks down on me, and he looks at me through the lens of the garments of, the son of, uh, of his son, Jesus Christ, and he says, you are righteous. But Satan wants to come along and say, well, is that really true? And we have to rise up and say, that's what God says, so I'm going to believe that it's true. I am at peace with God. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to confess your sin. That just means that your status is secure. But not only is peace, the final thing is this power. All throughout this passage, you've seen the expression, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, declares the Lord of hosts, right? Six times. It identifies that the Lord has all power and resources at his control to be used for the needs of his people. Let me say it again. It identifies that the Lord has all power and resources at his control to be used for the needs of his people. My friends, there's a basic message here for our discouragement. And that is that we do need to have a perspective that is a perspective that God brings to the situation. We can be so caught up with what we're looking at and the physical things that are right before us, but there's something bigger that's going on that we need to hook ourselves to. There's a perspective that we need to see. You see, prophecy is never just kind of like, wow, that's really kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, wow. Prophecy, man. Yeah, let's think about the future. No, Prophecy, when understood in its context, is supposed to establish my heart. It is supposed to purify my life. It's supposed to teach me that God is in control. It doesn't just tell me about what's going to happen in the future, but in light of the future, it tells me how to live today so that I can live that life that he's called me to with hope and with certainty. So friends, if you are feeling discouraged, if you have fallen flat on your face again and you're coming to God saying, God, please forgive me, or you're looking at the face of the consequences of your sin and it's there day after day, come back to God and say, God, you've called me to this. Even with the mess that I've created, you've forgiven, you have restored, I am right with you. Now give me grace, give me strength to live in such a way for your glory. And Lord, 
encourage me. Help me with the things that you've called me to. Let me rest on your strength. Let me get to work. Let me not fear these, these doubts and these, these voices that I'm hearing that say, hey, you know, just throw in the towel. He doesn't care. Help me to do what you've called me to do. And friends, I just, just want to bring it down now to these three words and then um, I think the, the final statement, the three words there were be strong, go to work, and don't be afraid. Th- those aren't just commands thrown out there just say, now just go do it. Like a Pharisee, God's saying, listen, because of me, you can, you can be strong. <laughs> you can do the work. And you cannot be afraid. And so we finish with this. With God's help, you can do what God has called you to. Can. This is not, again, this is not a rah-rah message. This is, this is truth fleshed out of context. The context that we have here in Haggai that's saying to those people, I've called you to rebuild this temple. It looks like nothing, but get to work because this is important to me and you have no idea what it is you're building. And then secondly, it is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it to press on and then to fail and to get up and to seek restoration and to press on and to get up and then fall again and to to seek restoration and forgiveness and to press on. It is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. And that is a picture of our Christian life, to keep being encouraged with the right things, the things that matter, a Godward, a Christ-centered, gospel-centered encouragement that brings glory to God. Lord, help us today to think through, Lord, our discouragements, to give them right perspective, and then, Lord, to live in such a way that our feelings aren't ruling us, but, Lord, you and your truth and your promises and your presence and your power, Lord, so many things are are at work in our lives that we can rest on. So, Lord, we, we... don't have to live defeated lives, Lord. We can live lives that, although they're messy, they're for your glory. We ask you, Lord, for your strength now as we ponder these things in your name. Amen.